0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Good morning. My name is Heidi. Thank you so much for leading us this morning, Flick. And I am new to this church. I've been around for maybe the last six months. My husband, Ed, and our little six-year-old daughter, Avia. We have been so excited to join this community, become part of this community, and love that justice flows through this this community. And it's a real uh, heartbeat which drew us towards this space. And this morning, please indulge me. I'm going to be sharing a little bit about my own life story, partly because this is a series about faith at work and why we do the things that we do. And my career has been a, a, almost a 20-year strong career in the third sector, which is kind of the voluntary sector, working in charities, uh, many different types of charities. And I'm going to be sharing just some threads of what, who I am today and why work has impacted me and why my faith has grown through my working environment but beyond that um, also there's been this intrinsic um, development in our own life in our own family life and I'm going to share some of our stories at home and where justice has been something that's flown through our own family life and our own values and who we are, it's not just about what I, I, I walk to work on a Monday morning at 5 o'clock actually it's something that flows through the lifeblood of me as us as, as, as a family and our community so let me just start with the why for those of you that know Simon Sinek he says start with the why I believe that God is a God of justice and that we all have a part to play in God's amazing story of justice and not just because I get to work in a charity space but wherever you find yourself in this world we all get to play part of this amazing story of God's redemptive story of justice I was born uh, into a Christian family as a second-generation immigrant. Um, I, my father is from Sri Lanka, and my mother is from Finland, but I was born here. But raised in Sri Lanka, my father had an opportunity to move back to his motherland, and that's where I grew up and had all my education. Um, and I would say that that's really where um, I was introduced to abject poverty in ways that I had never really understood or seen in my life. Uh, it was around us everywhere. Uh, If you have ever been to a country like Sri Lanka, uh, you will know what I'm talking about. There's poverty um, right in your face, staring at you in your face. Um, I would say I knew enough knowledge of the Bible at that time. I didn't really go to church growing up, but I had enough knowledge of who Jesus was to understand the difference between right and wrong. And really what I think God was at that time as a little child, understanding what God's best was for this world. And so in my own little mind... At that point, I was already forming an opinion of what I felt was God's justice. Uh, The school I went to, funnily enough, had a program called Community Action Service. Uh, In this country, it would be community service, and you'd only go to community service if you'd done something wrong. In my education, I was taught that I had to do so many hours in my last two years of education that was a service to Sri Lanka. And it was at that point that I started visiting prisons. I mean, I'm not sure really about safeguarding at that point. This is a long time ago. But I was going into uh, women's prisons, working with children. I was working with street kids. I was in orphanages. We were in community settings. Uh, We were building buildings and all sorts. And I think at that point in my life, with all of my schoolmates... We were learning about what does it mean to respond to uh, poverty, really. And I suppose the justice thread didn't come through to later. For those of you that are in the world, there is a very different, very big difference between poverty and justice. And when we when we, when we understand poverty, what we need to understand is that justice, that poverty is a direct result of injustice and inequalities. And it's a really important, distinguishing moment in my life when I understood that. Because for so often, the church responds to poverty in different ways. You know, we see it in this country. We have amazing food banks. We have, you know, we respond. We do mission to people. But when there's something about understanding that justice is about us responding to the world around us and, and changing systems that put people in poverty... Um, we begin to, like Oasis does, we begin to create new ways of working in the world around us that help us to respond to the injustices that we see and the inequalities that we see. And if you're like me, you might have grown up in a Christian context uh, in which justice wasn't really talked about. Actually, many churches didn't really talk about justice. Um, it was, it'd was it be more likely that you that you were subjected to uh, big evangelism drives and uh, out in the streets giving out tracts or whatever and sharing the gospel of Jesus. And uh, you would might go into uh, estates, and you might, what I now call is a hit-and-run mission. You might go in and do some nice things to that community and then extract yourself back into the nice four walls of your church. Thankfully, there are churches that don't do that and churches that have done that critical reflection, but that was my lived experience. And I began to ask some of those very real questions around, what do we do then? What does the church do? What is the church's responsibility when we're seeing poverty around us? Um, I was a children and youth worker in in a large, black majority, Pentecostal, evangelical, charismatic church for a number of years. It was was pretty much my first job. And I just remember asking these questions, working with all these young people and hearing these stories and trying to understand, well, what is the church actually doing to respond to these issues? They're not just spiritual issues that we're talking about here. These are issues of injustice and inequality that these young people are are experiencing, or not just young people, but families within the church and not just within the church, outside the church. And I just couldn't wrap my head around it theologically why, why the church wasn't responding in a meaningful way to these, to these uh, I suppose, stories that I was hearing. So I've spent, as I said, the last 20 years trying to answer that question. How can the church do better? How can the church respond to the injustice in this world? And um, I was introduced to a theologian called Rene Padilla. Who is uh, who is who is now uh, passed away, uh, but a theologian uh, from Latin America who was who was responding to uh, the issues of poverty and injustice within Latin America, and he termed this coin integral mission, and it it says, as it says is the Church speaking of and living out its faith in Jesus Christ in an undivided way in every aspect of life. And it is the work of the church in contributing to the positive, physical, spiritual, economic, psychological, and social transformation of people. So we're not just looking at people's souls that have been willing to be saved. We're looking at people's lives in a very holistic way. We're saying we want to respond to all of life. And as he began to pioneer this uh, in, the, in Latin America, it quickly grab gain traction across the globe uh, across different church denominations recognizing that evangelism and social action must be two sides of the same coin we can't just we can't just approach one side of the gospel without responding to the other side of the gospel and so this term and so if I use the word integral mission this is what it essentially means Jill last week uh, talked about the goal of the Christian life is to live and love well. And I love that when she said that. It is so true. It is the goal of the Christian. What is the goal of the Christian life? To live and love well. And today really is my experience of what it is, what it means to live and love well in my, in my own vocation, in my life, in my family, in my community, in my friendships. And it's hard to unpack that in 20, in 20 minutes, 25 minutes, a whole career. But I'm just going to draw some small threads out. Um, And let me just start by sharing some facts. This is taken from World Vision. um, World Vision's website was just recently updated so these are fairly current statistics. I'm just going to pause for like 30 seconds just so you can read a couple of those if you can and I'll, I'll read out a couple. I don't know about you, but these statistics are fairly shocking, right? <laughs> is it God's intention that 24% of the world's global population live in fragile contexts? I want to suggest no. <laughs> That's not God's intention. And therefore, what is, what is my role? What is our collective role to responding to these statistics? and not be blindsided by them. I think so often we can see statistics like this and they're scary and they're big and they're ugly. But I wanna say that we do have an opportunity to respond. And if we believe that God's mission is to seek the restoration and renewal of earth, then we do have a corporate and an individual responsibility to respond to this tragedy. Uncertain times, unsettled lives, was the appropriately titled 2022 Human Development Report, which highlighted the huge challenges of facing us as a global community. The critical challenge of a climate change and wider ecological degradation and the twin global shocks of the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine has overlapped and interacted, resulted in unprecedented Levels of vulnerability and insecurity and what has been called an impending global catastrophe and the human globe and the the global human development index has declined over the last few years for the first time in over three decades and has wiped out the last uh, and has wiped out gains made. Millions are facing severe food insecurity and famine across the globe. And our ability to tackle uh, these problems and cope with these shocks is hampered by the massive uh, inequality and increasing social and political polarization. So what does a faithful expression of God's calling to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God look like at a time of global crisis? When Desmond Tutu famously said, there comes a point when we need to just stop pulling people out of the river, the hit and run mission, we need to go upstream and we need to find out why they're falling in, and it begs the question, what's our response to that? And my faith has been a constant driver in the pursuit of justice in both my career and in my personal life because I can't look at statistics like this and go No, I don't have a responsibility to that. Because the Bible that I read says I do have a responsibility. That God is a God that's that His that whose mission is to redeem and restore and renew this world. And that before sin came into this world, there was this beautiful space of freedom, of liberation, of relationship, of community. And so, not least, because I, Haiti, live here in the UK in a middle-class existence I can't ignore this I can't ignore the fact that there are brothers and sisters all around the world that are struggling that don't have enough food to eat that are subjected to such severe famines or injustices or inequalities And so furthermore, I'm asking the question, where is the church in this? And this has been part of my role, is to ask. Is to ask the church to critique itself and to ask itself, how do we respond to to these issues? So whilst this sounds hugely discouraging... I'm going to share some stories of encouragement because let's be fair, the church can be amazing when it wants to be, uh, and I'm going to share just some stories about uh, where that has led me and my and my partner and our daughter and our family and friends. This picture here is, is a result of doing some critical reflection uh, through a role that I was in. I was I when I left the church I was working at because I just quite frankly just got bored of asking the same questions over and over again. So I went to work for a charity and I became a sexual health advisor responding to, at the time, it was a crisis around teenage, teenage pregnancies within a particular borough in the UK. And we were I was part of a multidisciplinary team looking at how do we respond to this crisis where young people are repeatedly getting pregnant, where they're ending up in um, housing, uh, host- in hostels, uh, which really were were great, but weren't really resolving the issue uh, of why why they were there in the first place. And through that time, it was an amazing space for me. Uh, We as a family, and uh, with my best friend, we started to ask the questions. So, okay, that's great that we're doing that in our professional life, but what does that mean beyond that? And so quite, probably quite naively (laughs) at the time, we moved our entire life from West London to Southeast London, where we live now, we rented a massive house, and we started fostering teenagers. <laughs> and I say quite naively, because obviously, those who people who have teenagers, work with teenagers, um, will know that it's not an easy feat to have teenagers, and particularly that strange teenagers in our home. It, changed our world. These young people changed our theological thinking, our framing. It wasn't my job necessarily. It was the sitting at the table with these young people day in, day out, having dinner, talking through their crisis, listening to their moans, um, listening to them try to figure out life at a very vulnerable point in their life. This for us was about how do we as a family respond to God's call. To see this world become a kinder and fairer place. This is our call. And these young people changed our world, changed our lives. And I wouldn't change any moment of having those young people in life no matter how hard it was at times it nearly broke us at times we had police coming into a house at 3 a.m in the morning because of drug raids we've had young people ending up in hospital with like pregnancies and but now we sit here with still in relationship with a number of these we have like surrogate grandchildren now I mean at our age we have like plenty grandchildren but how amazing we've seen marriages come out of this space because our home became a place of hospitality our home became a A place of safety. Our home became a place of God's justice, Um, and so soon after that, well, whilst we were fostering, I moved jobs as well from the West London YMCA. I moved to the Salvation Army. Um, For those of you at the Salvation Army, they're an amazing denomination that, on their doorstep, will always open their door to whosoever needs anything at any point in their lives can be welcomed in, it really was a place for me to learn about what it meant to not be a savior, but to learn to journey with people. And it was really where, again, another theological shifting for me around, you know, so often as Christians, we want to respond to poverty. And so when we do that, We often become a savior in somebody's story, and our own egos take root, and my ego is certainly there. My ego of wanting to save people. Now, the intent wasn't wrong. Of course I wanted to see people come out of poverty, but my own ego meant that all I wanted to do was save people and save people's stories. But it was at that time when God began to teach me, really teach me about what does it mean to journey with? What does it mean to create space with? What does it mean for us to be immersed in somebody else's story? Because when you're immersed in someone else's story, it's at that point you get to understand somebody's lived experience. And it's only out of understanding somebody's lived experience that you can begin to empathize. And so I thank the Salvation Army for that. Um, I was able to do a lot of work at the Salvation Army. Um, I was the divisional director for looking after all of the social work provision across London. Um, And again, all of those stories of meeting people really helped to shift some critical thinking for me, and it taught me about agency, and it taught me about how people can have agency in their worlds if only we just come alongside. Um, and so finally, I'm here at Tear Fund uh, through uh, a redundancy at the Salvation Army and having a child. I ended up moving into a role at the Salvation Army. No, sorry, Salvation Army, at Tear Fund. It's an international relief and development organization serving the world's most marginalized and vulnerable communities globally. And again, just all those light bulb moments that I've had for all, all, all of these, these years... Um, led me to this current role where I get to work with an amazing team of theologians that are based in different parts of the world that help us to think differently about how we read the Bible through a different contextualized lens. So often, I don't know about you, but my experience was very much a, a white, Western, male lens of how I read the Bible. If I looked at my bookshelf at one time, if I looked at my podcast at one time, if I looked at my books at one time, because all of this is what the church was telling me to read, And then you had these light bulb moments of like, hang on a second, there's some amazing women out in the world that are writing and reading and helping us to learn about the Bible. And then there's these amazing indigenous theologians helping us to read from a contextualized lens of what it means to be an indigenous person. And so suddenly, you know, we're, we're opened up this whole new world of theologians and thinking and understanding. What does it mean to understand around climate degradation from a Latin American indigenous community? Until I'd gone to Tearfund, I hadn't really heard many of those perspectives, but wow, has it changed my world and my life. And so if I believe that God is a God of justice, and if I believe in a kinder and more radically better world, and if I believe that I am clear about God's mission, then we get to tackle inherent systemic and uh, structural racism. We get to tackle prevailing colonial attitudes, and we get to tackle gender inequalities. And so, in my current role, I've got to do a a number of things, like developing um, symposiums on diversity, inclusion and and equity, hearing from amazing people around the world, helping us to think about what does it mean to be more inclusive in different contexts? What does it mean to be uh, somebody that thinks with a diverse mind? What does it mean to welcome in the stranger into, into your setting? And importantly, within the aid and development sector, we've had to challenge some of the colonial Western attitudes that are still imposing their narratives in in poorer communities around the world. We get to think about what does it mean to really shift power and agency and money and resources and decision making and, and mindsets to the communities we serve so people can make those decisions for themselves that we're not making them for them. We get to challenge biblical narratives that are harmful. And I have an amazing colleague called Prabhu, who is from Sri Lanka as well. And he wrote this program called Transforming Masculinities. Because so often when we talk about gender inequality, we're saying we're wanting to empower women. So you hear these stories, you're going out and go, we're really empowering women. And we're saying we've empowered women. But what is it not doing? It's not addressing male behavior when it comes to sexual gender-based violence or gender inequalities. So he wrote this program to address that very thing. And we're seeing amazing data coming out of this program now where communities have transformed the way that they think about and how they read the Bible, how they see equality and how, how men treat women. And how women are released to be able to go and, and build a livelihood for themselves. And out of that, then able to like, educate their children. We're breaking these huge systemic uh, injustices. Mainly by helping people to see the Bible through a different lens. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and so I was recently on a trip to Colombia uh, uh, last month. And uh, I, I'm going to end here just sharing a little bit about a campaign, uh, which translated is called Born Amongst Us. And so I just want to share just a little bit of a background on it. It could be said that the history of humanity has always been a history of movements, mixtures, and exchanges that have made us who we are today. Despite the fact that migration has always existed, in recent years, we have witnessed an increase in the number of people who are forced to leave their places of origin in search of a dignified and secure life. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, there are currently 68.5 million people forcibly displaced uh, around the world. And several of those million people are in Latin America and in the Caribbean. And many of them flee from violence, poverty, wars, uh, climate phenomena. Others seek to reunite with their loved ones. And for thousands of these people migrating, it's not an option. It is a matter of survival. And so in the midst of this this situation, we're asking, we're witnessing the pain and the concern and the increase in feelings of hatred uh, and rejection before the arrival of the new neighbors join join them. And these manifestations of xenophobia are present in all levels, in government, public institutions, civil society, and even in faith communities. So how do we address xenophobia? How do we address that? There's this amazing team in Tier Fund, again, with a number of other people across Latin America that built this campaign called Born Amongst Us. And it's a campaign that catalyzed the church, challenged biblical narratives that excluded, and encouraged the church to think about how they can respond to the migrant crisis. And um, one of my team members who was a part of, of, of this campaign, he wrote this song. So I'm going I'm to play this song uh, <clears throat> just so you can get a sense of how this campaign began to get rolled out in Latin America. Then I'm going to share a couple of stories of how this campaign has changed a continent, essentially. That's uh, Richard uh, Struttis-Serrano, who is one of my team members. He is a pastor, he's a theologian, but also a musician. And as this campaign was rolled out, uh, so was this song and lots of other... Uh, resources that were sent out across the across across different churches, and I was able to sit in, church, in community settings in colombia and I, I was blown away by church leaders coming to me and leaders within the churches saying, "This campaign changed my life. it helped me to see the stranger as something other than just a stranger but my brother or my sister." And churches opening up their doors and changing the way that they view the migrant and welcoming people into their church and setting up programs that are helping to address um, livelihoods and inequalities like access to health care. And we were in one community... And um, it's, I, it's hard to talk about, I often cry when I talk about this, but there was, it, there was about th- maybe 30 to 40 children in this community with their mothers, and the mothers were saying, they were saying, wow, there's so many of you from all over the world, thank you for coming, thank you for sharing our story, and it was really powerful, because one of the things that we can do is share the stories of others, right? Is once you're in those communities, you get to, you get to hear those experiences and share it. But there was one child in that community when we asked, when um, Richard asked, he said, how can we, how can we pray for you? And the little boy started to cry and he said, and he just couldn't stop crying. And when we eventually, when he was eventually able to get out what he could, um, he said, I miss my abuela, my grandmother, who I'm never going to see again because of the, because of the journey. And you hear stories like that and you look at the face of a child and you're like, this is not okay. This is not Okay. Why is a child being subjected to the poor decisions of our governments, of our institutions, and often our churches as well? So when I talk about my my faith and my job, these are the two things that intertwine to help me tackle some of those inequalities. And Richard, he stood there with his child. And he held this child. I mean, it must have been for a long time. There was just silence as we all just looked. And I I remember seeing this, and I was just looking at this image of him holding this child. And I just thought, "That's that's our job, is to hold people. It's, it's not necessarily to bring, always bring the answers, but to hold people. And how he held that child. I mean, we were all at this point sobbing. <laughs> and just it was a holy moment for us. And just a recognition that we can all play a role. And there's this um, quote that I use a lot that just reminds me of what our role can be. May we know and create places of welcome that help us become something other than strangers to one another and to ourselves and may we learn how to make one another at home in this world how do we create those tables those spaces those sacred spaces where people are welcome and this beautiful image by jan richardson this idea that we're all welcome at this table but so often those tables are exclusionary How can I, Haiti, create a table in which people are welcome, where I can hear other people's lived stories and experiences? And therefore, how does that impact the way I can respond to some of the statistics in my own meaningful way? And whilst I get to do that as part of my job as well, my, my paid role, I'm also asking the question is, how do I do that as part of every part of my life, not just what I do nine to five? And I'm just going to end with this one last quote by a woman called Christine Pohl who wrote a book called Making Room. And she says this, that the truth about the creation of a new kind of culture is experienced in the practice of hospitality. As Flip was talking about this morning, like, you know, just after church, going out at the back there and creating a space of hospitality so that we can talk to one another and get to know one another's stories. We get to do that at lots of different parts of our life. How do we create a space where justice, love, and inclusion become the very values of our life that flow through every part of our life? And how do we create those tables in which we get to meet one another? And for me, I can only say with encouragement that having those tables has been one of the most outstanding, revolutionary, mind-blowing, transforming spaces of my life because I'm encountering somebody else. I'm encountering a stranger who is no longer a stranger to me, but a friend and somebody I can journey with. Thank you so much for bearing with me this morning (laughs) and listening through.
1: Thanks so much, Heidi. There's a lot there to um, be thinking about and be challenged about. And um, I suppose our response here is uh, is twofold. So as we just heard, how do we do that ourselves as individuals? Um, but also, what does that look like for us as a church? We're all part of this together. There isn't any one person dictating what this should look like. This is all about how do we um forge what our vision looks like um together as a church to be that message of justice to be that message of love um, so we're just going to spend some time praying together um, and i'll leave a few moments of pause you might want to look at the cross you might want to close your eyes you might want to get comfortable <laughs> um, And we'll just take some time to chew over some of what we've heard today. Maybe there's something that struck you. Or maybe you're still asking the question. God, give us vision to see your kingdom here on earth. Seeing the possibility of transformation for the better in each person, problem, home, inequality, conversation, church or policy to see a kinder and fairer world. God give us eyes to see and hear the groans and cries of our world the marginalised, the hurting, the fragility of the stranger and those we know. And recognise the hopeful around us too. In our day-to-day, our workplace, our social settings, our homes, any tables we're invited to. And God, give us ears to hear your call. Push us, dissatisfy us, disrupt us in our normal. Let us not be happy with the status quo. Just take a moment to think about what that looks like in your own life. God give us courage to seize the day, to take up opportunities, to lift our eyes and to look up at what could be possible, at what we could contribute, to dream of and act to see justice realised through both the systemic change we know this world needs and through the smallest act. Of kindness we can manage. Give us the determination and strength to learn, to increase our knowledge, to improve our skills so we can be equipped to bring our best, to be strategic, to know how to disseminate resources at an organizational political, economical, and community level. And God help us practice what it means to have kind hands. Hands that are careful and diligent. Help us bring our best selves understanding how we can equip and support one another and be mindful of our own and others' fragility, our skills and our parameters. God, let justice roll like a river through us. Transform us with your spirit. As a church, may we be so full of deep hope that this world can be kinder and better. Help us to discern your will. Let the river wash away The fear, doubt, greed, or influences that don't speak of your love, of your character. We are part of God's story placed on this earth for a short while. Let our footprints be lighter as we love God's world. Let our scars fade as we love one another with grace and compassion. Let our imaginations know no limits as we seek transformation from systems that marginalize and as we break barriers to learn more of one another's stories and journey together. Let our souls soar and our spirits sing as we discover more of God's love for each one of us and feel a strength rise in us. And let God's kingdom come here on earth as we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Amen.